Well, good morning. My name is Rick. And I'm Tara, his wife. And uh, thank you to Krista for that very gracious <laughs> introduction. Get you some friend, friends who only gives away your coffee habit and not the other <laughs> weird ones that she didn't mention. Uh, we have a little guy named Ricky who is in the nursery. He's going to be turning uh, one year old uh, in about six days. So we're pretty excited about that. And we haven't met quite a few of you all still. And so I'll give you a little bit of our background. Uh, but Kara and I spent uh, about 12 years total, I think, for me and 11 for her at Southeastern University in Lakeland. That's where we've been, uh, Lakeland, Florida, for quite a long time. For about the last five years, uh, Kara was leading a ladies' freshman dorm. Uh, and I was able to uh, teach some classes, take some classes. But we loved it. Um, but are more excited to be here. With yeah, you guys. we're so excited to be at the cross. It's been such an amazing um, experience being here. And I said in the service before, and I'll say it again, this is truly a promise fulfilled mm-hmm. by God to our family to find a community that is um, rich in discipleship. Um, and it truly is a discipleship focused community. And we were looking for a place like the cross, especially to raise our children in and for us to be challenged. And so we have truly been impacted by the community here. Yes, we are so thankful for the discipleship culture that exists and is continuing to develop here um, because I have been really influenced by a philosopher uh, out in California who's passed away recently, but he would say that the most important issue facing the world today with all of its heartbreaking needs is whether Christians become disciples of Jesus, learning to live from him, the kingdom of the heavens into every corner of human existence. Like this is the lever that makes the world better. When people who say they believe in Jesus learn to train and act like him. This, this changes the face of the planet and social structures and everything. And so that's so precious to me. And I think one of the biggest indicators that we really do have a developing discipleship culture in this church is that Tim has the guts and the bravery to have a three-part series on loving your neighbor when many pastors would be afraid that that would bore people. They would prefer to preach on like sex or financial prosperity or something to uh, get everybody coming to church. But the fact that Tim knows that loving your neighbor is a fundamental, it is not obvious, it is not quite intuitive. We have to actually train to do this um, and to take it seriously and do a series on it is something that I really appreciate and am thankful that we get to participate in. Yeah, and if you're anything like I was when I met Rick and heard his passion for loving your neighbor and knowing that that is what we are called to do, um, I thought, listen, I got this thing figured out. I'm fine. I wave to my neighbor. I let people cut in front of me at the grocery store when I clearly got there first. Um, You know, there are things that we do that we're like, listen, I'm good. I've got this figured out. There is a difference, though, between being courteous and being loving, okay? Loving takes a lot more work and wisdom. Uh, Our little guy right now, it's kind of horrifying. He will, and Krista and Danny know this, he will growl and tackle their children. (laughs) And and I'll say, Ricky, Ricky. Yeah, I'll be like, Ricky, Ricky, be sweet, be sweet. And Rick always tells me, don't say be sweet, say be loving, be kind, because those take a lot more effort and work. Being sweet and courteous and nice don't take a lot of effort. In this society, that's pretty normal. We're like, you know, I've got it covered. We're doing we're our good citizen thing, you know, and, and we're, you know, making peace, living in harmony with everyone. Um, but loving your neighbor takes a lot more work and wisdom than that. Yeah, I think being a reasonably well-adjusted member of society 
uh, who you know picks up your trash in your yard and gives the I'm sorry wave when you cut someone off and the thank you wave when they let you in, these don't change the world, right? Loving your neighbor as yourself, as worship to Jesus Christ, is what changes the world. It is what made the early church explode um, in ancient Rome when they were being killed for it. That love of neighbor was such a serious reason for the growth. And so there's just a difference between kind of blending in with the culture around you and trusting that Jesus Christ actually has all of the authority on heaven and on earth, knows the way that the world works, works best, and learning from him how to interact with our neighbors, right? So I think that we can all agree with this. At one point in our lives or another, we have noticed uh, that ourselves, uh, we generally pay way too much attention to trivial things that are kind of fun and entertaining and sometimes a waste of time, and very frequently do not give the proper attention to the most important things in the world. I mean, this just, I get frustrated with myself for this. So we see this like in society uh, where there'll be hundreds of thousands of people dying from preventable illnesses in other countries, which gets like five minutes of news time, but when Justin Bieber gets back on Instagram, the place goes crazy, right? Um, and so to actually take this um, commandment uh, seriously, it's going to take some actual intentionality and some real uh, effort to do so. So I'm going to go ahead and read the passage with you all this morning. It's Matthew 22, 34 through 40. If you want to follow along. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So the last two weeks, Tim has been telling us who our neighbor is, right? The first uh, message in the series was uh, talking about how our neighbors will frequently uh, be in other ethnic or cultural groups uh, than we're from. And uh, secondly, many times our neighbor will be uh, people who are just lonely, right? Today, Karen and I are going to engage with uh, three questions. What is love of neighbor and what is it not? Uh, why to love neighbor and how to begin? So uh, the first one, what is love of neighbor? Uh, I think that it's really important to really be very serious about our terms here. Uh, because we are surrounded by a culture which it drives me insane, it irritates me that we only have one word for love, and the Greeks had four, we have one, and the word we do have we use for, from everything from our children to pizza, right? And so to really think about what it is is, is helpful. So first, uh, love is not a feeling, right? There are generally feelings involved with love. When you do so, love someone, invest time and effort into their well-being, feelings most definitely follow, like for sure. But love is not the feeling itself. And I think that uh, there were a few contributions I could make to just people, people's thought in the church globally. And this would be, I think, especially helpful for men um, to know that love is not primarily sweet and sentimental and sappy it would be really helpful for us to get beyond just that element of it, the kindness part, and get to the truth and goodness uh, and gutsy part, right? So patience or love is kind. Love also rejoices with the truth, right? Love is not opposed to wisdom. It is wise, right? Love does what is best for another person, and that, that requires some wisdom. And so I think that's, that's really important to remember. So love is not a feeling, like Rick said, and love is not a desire, 
Um, I have been raised as a pastor's kid, so I am used to being used as sermon illustrations constantly. And like everyone in the church turns around and looks at you and you're like sinking in your seat. Um, My older sister, this is one my dad used all the time. My older sister was around three years old and she went on like a date with my dad. He took her out for ice cream and they're sitting in the car and they're eating their ice cream. And my sister goes, oh, I love ice cream. And my dad, being a pastor and being a parent where we want like teachable moments, you know, um, he looks to her and he said, Kristen, we don't love ice cream. We love people. And they talked about this the whole way home, how you love people and you like things. And um, he, my dad went home and he was like, she got it. She understood it. He told my mom, like, listen, Pam, she understands this concept. And my mom was like, Robert, lighten up. She's three years old. Let her say that she loves ice cream. No big deal. And my mom was not convinced that she understood what my dad had said. Well, the next morning, my dad made waffles, which he does often, and they're really good. Um, And my mom, of course, took a bite and yelled out, oh, I love waffles. (laughs) And my sister turned around, three years old, turned around and said, mom, you don't love waffles. You love people. And my dad had a blast with that. He loved that. So really, like Rick's saying, we use this word. We only have one word for love, and we use it all the time. I love cars. I love clothes. I love food. No, we want to drive cars. We want to wear clothes, and we want to eat food, right? I want to drink coffee. <laughs> that, is, that is where we're at. So we need to understand that the words we're using not only need to be more, the word love needs to be more important to us, but as we say it, we're displaying this in front of our children, in front of those around us, that we actually love these things. And so we need to rethink the, the definition of the word love. Yeah, so I think it really is helpful. The best definition um, I think I've heard for love so far is to do what is good for your neighbor, right? In the same way we love ourselves by doing what is actually good for us or creating the conditions that would allow our neighbor to have a good life, right? Um, And so I think what's really helpful on staff here at the cross is uh, knowing our working definition of love as a staff is wanting our teammates to win, right? This is what Tim says. I mean, I love you guys. I want you to win. That is like such a helpful way to think about it. So um, also... Love isn't a transaction. Love is not looking, going in a room, talking to people, and looking for something that we need, right? Or giving love to a friend because we need something. I don't know if the other ladies in the room know this, but when I hear someone's like, hey, I work at, I, I got this new job at the store, and it's like, do I get a discount because you work there? Um, it's, it can't be like that. We can't have friendships based on what we can receive in return. So I am reading this book right now, called Uninvited, and I'm studying it for the uh, youth ladies. We're going to do a a Bible study this summer, and I, I love the book. I would highly recommend it. But the author says in the book, in one of the chapters, she says, unfortunately, as followers of Christ, we get, even us, we get caught up in walking into a room and trying to look for validation, trying to look for a sense of belonging, trying to look for compliments, for affirmation. We are in relationships to get what we need from people. When we were not designed to do that, we need to rethink the way that we love one another and have relationships. Really, what we need to do is go to the Lord. 
in our quiet time and experience the fullness of God and get what we need from him, get our affirmation, our worth, Mm -hmm. our sense of belonging from him so that we walk into a room, we bring the fullness of God's presence and we're able to give his love, give his peace, give his joy to other people rather than looking for things for ourselves. So love is not a feeling. Love is not a desire, and love is not a transaction. So what is love? Love is doing the most redemptive thing for the person being loved. Mm. We all know tough love. We've all had those moments where you have to confront somebody or say something, and you, you don't really want to. I'm at heart, I'm a people pleaser, so I do not like to confront people. That was a real issue for me uh, back a uh, few years ago. And I really started to think, why is this a problem for me? Why is confronting people a problem? And it's because I'm worried that I'm doing it out of being, you know, wanting wanting to do it for myself, out of being selfish, wanting to share my, let me tell you my opinion about this or how how you're living your life. Um, But we really need to be able to stand back when we're going to confront someone and look at the posture of our heart. Is the posture of our heart doing what is best for the person that we're talking to, or are we doing something to make ourselves feel better? So we need to make sure that we're doing the most redemptive thing for the person being loved, that we're doing whatever it is that we feel called to do for that person because Jesus loves them so much. So I think it is very helpful to have a precise understanding of what love is. And this is not the end and beginning of it for sure. Do your own research, be thinking, reflecting. Uh, But in the same way that it's really helpful to think about what love is and what it isn't and what it doesn't have to be, it's also really helpful to look at the different uh, potential motives, right? To to become a loving person who does it characteristically and out of habit. Um, Not all motives are equal. Um, Some aren't as powerful, right? I mean, our energy... Our motive is our why, our energy, our purpose. And some purposes will help us get through difficult times and others are weaker and we won't get over those obstacles if our fuel is too weak. And in the same way, uh, motives are also like the steering wheel on a car. It's like the gas tank and the steering wheel where you will make certain decisions based on how well you can love somebody, right? And so I think it's, it's really helpful uh, to keep these in mind. Uh, first, uh, one very common reason to begin a loving neighbor as a Christian, is out of a sense of duty, right? Uh, Because we have to, we're supposed to, Jesus tells us to, and we'd better do it. And let me just be really clear about this. If duty is the only thing that motivates you to do what is right, then keep on doing it. (laughs) It's better to do your duty and fulfill your responsibilities than for you just to drop them, for sure. Um, I used to work at uh, the Lakeland Yacht Club back at home uh, when I was a youth pastor, and uh, there was an elderly gentleman there who would say, you know, uh, when I ask a kid for some, I like the guy, the impression seems negative, but he's a fun guy. He's like, when I'd ask for ketchup and a kid brings it and I'd say, thank you, they'll say, no problem. I know it's not a problem, it's your job, right? <laughs> that type of attitude's not gonna get anybody a raise. People aren't necessarily gonna come visit your place again if you just fulfill your duty and have an attitude that's not particularly welcoming, right? But if you go somewhere like Chick-fil-A, where, what do they say? My pleasure, right? Or your welcome would be just as good, and you can't get in the place, right? Because there are too many cars. And I think that stuff really helps. And so duty is very important, for sure. It's what holds the world together. Um, but it's, it's a good place to start. It's not the peak, right? Secondly, uh, beyond duty, uh, the development of virtue is a good 
motivator. It's a good one to become a virtuous person that has the moral strength and wisdom to do what is right when it's required. That ability, that moral muscle um, is really good. Um, a few weeks ago, I guess a few days ago, uh, Kara and I, the joiners, went to uh, Zoo Atlanta, saw the panda bears, and Ricky thought they were really cute from afar, but there was one leaning against the gas. I put them way too close to the glass. He like freaked out, and everybody was judging me. They am a bad dad or something. I don't know. But uh, the zoo is awesome, right? Because you see these creatures who've adapted to their environments you know, pretty well, and the monkeys are just free when they're swinging, right? And the fish are free and doing what they're supposed to do when they're uh, swimming around. And cheetahs that can run at really high speeds. This is an amazing thing. They are free to do that. The equivalent of those skills and freedoms uh, between animals and then humans, us is virtue. To be able to be patient and kind and not boastful and not envious uh, supports our ability to do what we are created to do. And so virtue is very important. We should uh, keep this in mind as we're learning to love neighbor. But if virtue, if the development of virtue is the lid of our motivation, it's a low one. And it also provides a serious stumbling block, I think. Because when there's nothing beyond, when there's not a reason beyond developing virtue, uh, generally our compensation for developing that virtue becomes some self-righteous pride, right? Which is a huge stumbling block and a very low lid. And so we want to shoot for something beyond duty and virtue, even though they are essential and very important. Another motivation is to be happy, right? This is a good motivation, not the best, but it is a good motivation. So Rick uses this quote by John Ortberg that the youth kids have heard a ton. But the quote is, there is a God-shaped hole in our heart that only God can fill. And there is a human-shaped hole in our heart that God refuses to fill. We were designed to be in relationship with one another. We were designed to be in relationship with the Father and with each other. So this is a good thing. Relationships are good, but when we're having relationships and loving people to be happy, that's not going to be fulfilling. It's not going to be something that's sustainable. Um, I'm, I'm careful to give this illustration because I'm not saying anything about this church. I'm saying as Rick and I have been to many churches, we have recognized something, and that's that um, people can have really good intentions, right? So church, there, there can be church people that have really good intentions that get together and they say, listen, this is our mission. We're going to love other people for Jesus' sake. We're going to love our neighbor. We're going to go out and love people and make sure that people, people feel welcome and accepted, and then they start hanging out, right? They have events, which I love. I think creating memories together is so important. But they have events and they hang out and all of a sudden they're like, man, I really am happy. This is really great. This is fun. And all of a sudden they start to want to protect this group. They don't want to allow people to come inside of it because they don't want to risk losing some of their happiness that they're finding in one another. And then what happens is essentially you become a country club, right? You're exclusive. Uh, and I honestly believe that the world sometimes sees the church as a country club where we say, you don't belong. We, we belong together. We're together, but you don't belong. And we have to be so careful because then there becomes a major mission drift where at first it was all about loving people for the sake of Jesus. And then it turned into all about being happy for ourselves. So duty is a good motivation. Virtue is a good motivation. Happiness is a good motivation. But it's not the best motivation. The best motivation is to love our neighbor, to understand, experience, and eventually mirror the heart of Christ. 
So I'm about to share like one of my favorite stories. This is actually Rick's story, but I asked if I could share it. And he usually tells me if I'm telling a story wrong, so you can. I will let you okay. talk. <laughs> um, so Rick, when he was a little kid, his name, they called him Ricky. That's why our little guy's name's Ricky. And um, he had his dude, Teddy, okay? Teddy was uh, like a polar bear, I think. It was he like really a, white. Yeah. yeah, he used to be a polar bear. He's like grayish, nasty, smelly. Um, and by the end of it. And so he, Ricky hung out with Teddy. Teddy was his pal, his dude. They did everything together. And I know parents in the room are probably thinking like, my child has one of those. Like you have a love-hate relationship with this object because when it's missing or when it's in the laundry, they can't live without it. So you're like, I don't even care if it stinks. Just hold it, go to sleep. Um, so... Ricky loved his teddy. He went to his grandma's house one time, which they lived a little bit away from grandma's, and they hung out, had a good time, and got in the car after a good, good day together and drove home. And once he got home, he realized who was missing. Teddy. Teddy was missing. And Rick being the well-mannered child that he was, which he really was, I was not. I would have been furious. But he asked his mom, Mom, can we please go back and get Teddy? And she said, Honey, no, we can't. It's too far. She said, I'll call Grandma and make sure she takes care of him. So Ricky went to sleep, woke up the next morning, early the next morning, got in the car, drove to grandma's, got there, ran through the doors, like, where is my buddy? Where's my pal? And looks on the couch, and there's this little shoebox. There's this little shoebox, and Teddy's in there with a blanket over Teddy. And Rick really remembers this moment where he felt like grandma took care of Teddy. Way to go, grandma. And... Uh, and this is probably one of the best analogies I've ever heard of loving your neighbor for Jesus' sake. So listen up. Grandma had no connection to Teddy. She didn't give Teddy to Rick. She didn't hang out with Teddy. She didn't even know what he was like. You know what I'm saying? She wasn't buddies with him. She, she had no connection to Teddy. The person she did have a connection to was Ricky. She loved him. She cared about him so much that she took care of Teddy for him. So we need to start thinking this way, okay? We don't look at people and say, I love you because I have something in common with you. I have an experience with you. I have a connection with you. We love each other because we love Jesus. And he loves us. And he loves our neighbor. We don't look at it like we're talking about. We don't look at it like... I can get something out of you, so I'm going to love you. No, we say, Jesus has a heart for them. That's why I love you, and that's why I care about you. So Grandma was pretty rad. I think we can agree <laughs> on that. Um, and it's a cute story. It's sweet. Um, what does it look like in the real world, honestly? Um, I think Mother Teresa demonstrated this at the most extreme level, maybe with, since video cameras were there to record it, right? This lady would go into the most desperate places in the world and pick up people who would have made you uncomfortable to look at or be around at all because they've got an hour left to live and disease has deformed them and they can't do anything for society. And she would take them back to the convent with her sisters and she would say, we we're going to let them die like angels is what she would say. <clears throat> and so uh, when people would ask, why do you do this? Like, <laughs> they can't do anything from you. They may give you some disease or something. Why would you put yourself at this risk? She had the attitude that I think is the best one to have when it comes to loving neighbor for Jesus' sake, and that is, uh, she said, uh, I see Jesus in them, right? 
Now, my theology is a little different than hers, okay? I don't quite know that Jesus is within someone who doesn't have a relationship with him. I'm not saying that. But unquestionably, the love of Jesus was all over every inch of those people. And she was absolutely correct about that. And uh, that needs to be our motivation if loving our neighbor is to become worship to Jesus. And we think that's the highest motivation. Because it's not just when we love neighbor for Jesus' sake. It's not just an expression of our current valuing of Jesus, like where our worship is at that moment, it is also a process that builds that, builds that muscle. And as we go where Jesus is, that is loving neighbor, we become more like him. This is how we become more like him. We spend time with him. It also shows that we kind of have experienced the love of Jesus a little bit ourselves. Uh, they've always taught us in teaching classes, if you can explain a concept to a five-year-old, you understand it, right? And if you can give your love from Jesus to your neighbor, it means you've experienced some of it yourselves and you're reflecting upon it, right? And so not all motivations are different. We absolutely, or we, not all of them are the same. Uh, we think worship would be the highest because you benefit, your neighbor benefits, and the Lord benefits as he is glorified in it. So to get there is, is just gonna be a freeing thing for us. So the question is, how do we begin? How do we begin this massive change in our lives to begin to become the kind of people who easily and naturally love neighbor as self. Um, I think that uh, the pattern that I really appreciate came from a philosopher named Dallas Willard, a Christian guy, Southern Baptist guy, who's the chair of philosophy at University of Southern California. So that's pretty interesting for him to hang out there. Um, but he, he's come up with this method he calls the VIM method, V-I-M, and it stands for vision, intention, and means. And that goes for learning a foreign language or becoming good at a sport or loving your neighbor or making any change means you're having a vision of what life will be like when this change is developed. Uh, it means committing to intend to do it, commitment. Um, and then means, what are the steps we actually have to take, right? So a few words on vision and intention, and then Kara's going to go. Um, but I think that uh, I've heard the importance of vision articulated recently when Kara talked about this pastor uh, mentioning that if you're trying to teach your five-year-old to play violin, <laughs> She's not going to suffer through the practice, and you're not going to be able to suffer through the practice unless you both have a real serious vision of what life will be like when she masters this thing. So you might take her to the concert hall, right, where this building is, is glorious, right? I mean, the inside has been designed to bounce the sound off the right way, and you're experiencing the sound itself, which is, like, transcending, right? But then, like, these people, these many people who spend thousands of hours perfecting it, working together. This type of experience isn't just everywhere. And so if you show her this, it kind of gives her a vision of, I want to be able to do that someday, right? And it'll help her get through the practice. And I think it's important to really articulate our own vision to drive us when it comes to loving neighbor, because I've talked about this topic with very good, devout, smart Christian people at Southeastern, young people, old people, and uh, talking about what life would look like when this becomes natural, right? What the community looks like when gossip just isn't a thing that happens, right? When there is no personality conflicts that can't be overcome, and when political posturing is just a non-issue, right? And I'll kind of go through this stuff, and they'll say, I hear what you're saying. I agree this is important. Uh, I'm not saying it would be bad. It just sounds kind of boring, right? This is what they would say, good people. And I appreciate their honesty because I do think that many of these kind of stupid, embarrassing obstacles that are somewhere in our head that we haven't pulled out can stop us from making tremendous progress in what is most important. And so let me just put it like this. 
in case anybody does think that conflict or war or little tension between people is essential to an interesting life, it's not, right? What makes us happy, what makes life interesting is enthusiasm. And that's what we're talking about building for the Lord as we're learning to love him. Secondly, there is absolutely enough tension within each of our conflicted wills <laughs> to where you're not going to get bored if you're trying to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, right? There's a saying that I really appreciate uh, that says, uh, make peace with man and war with your sins. There's plenty to do there. And when you love your neighbor, let's say you get your own stuff together to a degree where you can consistently help other people, they'll have plenty of stuff to be working out that they could really use your support. And so having that vision of a community in your life uh, where love of neighbor becomes easy and natural and these other little social ills disappear, that is no loss, right? Secondly, after the vision, uh, to intend to do it, to get our intentions articulated and serious and clear is really important. Uh, otherwise, we'll just stop when it gets hard, right? We have to really commit to doing this. Uh, Dallas Willard talked once about um, a monk many years ago, five, 600 years ago, who was training in holiness. He joins a monastery, orders his life around becoming sanctified and easy uh, to serve the Lord. And he had this habit where he uh, would walk around you know, on the road and whenever he would begin to have a, a lustful thought, he would throw himself into a briar patch, like the thorn bushes. When I heard that the first time, I laughed out loud <laughs> in my car. Because <laughs> I pictured Nacho Libre, you know, a guy wearing his little brown suit and rope belt, jumping into a pile of garbage cans or a bush or something like that. This is hilarious to me. Anyway, so most people, when they hear uh, this said, when Willard tells this story and says he would throw himself into a briar patch at the thought or when the, a lustful thought began, they would always respond, are you serious? And he would respond, are you? And I think that is the way we need to be thinking about this. If Jesus has some sweet, nice advice on how to be a nice person, that can affect your business and your relationships and stuff like that. But if we understand him as the master of the universe who loves us more than we love ourselves, who loves our neighbor more than they love themselves, um, and he knows the way life works and has a better plan for ourselves than we do, then we hold on to his advice and commit to saying, I'll do what you tell me to do because I trust your wisdom. <clears throat> and so the means then, what are the steps we have to take? So where can we practice this? We can practice this here, right? In church, we're supposed to have patience with one another so we can fail together at loving each other and forgive one another and try again. Uh, we need to be able to work at loving our neighbor in church. If you can't love the person sitting next to you, it's going to be very hard for you to appropriately love the orphans and widows. I know I've been on a ton of mission trips. I have a huge heart for missions. But oftentimes we'll think, okay, I'll go on this mission trip, be, be there for like a week or two, love them, and then come back home. But then we have a trouble loving our own family, right? It's really, it's usually easier, we think, to love them, but we're not really loving them. We're just going and, you know, making ourselves feel good sometimes and then coming home. And so really, we need to practice it here. We need to practice it within our families, who you're committed to, who the Lord has given you. Um, and I was actually thinking when Tim was preaching a few weeks ago, I was praying and I was like, Lord, why is this so difficult for us? Why is it that loving our neighbor isn't one easy step? It's like our flesh is fighting with our spirit all the time. And 
I think a big part of it, at least for me, um, is that I feel like I'm doing it alone. I feel like when God says to love your neighbor, he's like, yeah, do that. And you're like, wait, what? You know what I mean? You're, we're, we're like, cre- like designed basically to kind of lean into our flesh. And so a big part of it is realizing when Jesus died and when he was resurrected and went to heaven, he did not leave us alone. He left us with the helper, the comforter, the Holy Spirit that dwells within you, that is around you, that is guiding you. And so I think a big part of it is realizing as we're asking the Lord to help us with this, to realize that you are not doing this alone, that the Holy Spirit is directing and guiding you to love your neighbor. Yeah, so where we begin with this, I think, I think it's really helpful to approach church with the understanding that I worship in song. I remember the value of God during song. I learned to value God more greatly by listening to the word. But I also think it's helpful to understand part of our worship to come to church specifically that he would work on the lenses of our eyes and reform our perception of people, changing what we see when we see people, right? So as we are right now, it's extremely common. Uh, just about everybody puts people in categories when they run into them. They're wearing this color shirt. Uh, they're this tall, they're this gender, this race, they like this sports team or they don't, whatever. These are all true things about our neighbor. They are real. They're just not the most important thing about other people. The most important thing uh, that we need to learn to really kind of internalize and make this automatic is that Jesus loves them, right? I want to get to the point where my lenses are changed, where the first thing that happens in my mind, the first memory is this is a treasure of Jesus Christ, right? And you are too, they are for the same reason uh, that you are. Jesus loves us, right? And so um, I think that, that prayer is going to be a huge part of this. The Holy Spirit's guidance, um, some other wise actions to remember that, to come to church, to practice seeing other people as the, as the treasure of Jesus is important. But I think that uh, one narrative that's really helpful for me with this particular uh, issue um, is uh, found in Luke chapter 18, uh, 35 through 43. And it says, as Jesus drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting on the roadside begging. In hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were out in front of him rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. I think that if you read through that scripture a few times and get the desperation this guy felt, I admire the hunger this guy had for his problem to be solved, right? For his sight to return to him. But Tim Cash's head quite a few times, eyes that see are common, Eyes that perceive are rare. We are called to be the people who perceive differently based on Jesus' thought process. And that requires that level of desperation to get it. And it's going to come from the vision of what the Lord can really do with the place when that becomes common. Thank you for joining us for the teaching here at the Cross Loganville. Let me encourage you to access our website, thecrossloganville.org. Tons of information. Uh, We'll answer many of your questions. Maybe you've been pondering what it means to have a personal relationship with Christ or maybe just uh, some other issues you're going through and you're like, uh, I I need to talk to someone. We would love to help you. 
Contact us via email, info at thecrossloganville.org, or you can call us at 770-554-3322. God bless you. Make it a great day.